everyone's in debt. The most common, famous kind of debt, of course, is money debt. That's sort of what we think of when we think of debt, your MasterCard bill or the money that you spent to get that machine. But sooner or later, all of us, if we're making something, if we're leading something, if we're building something, we end up in some sort of debt. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about technical debt, project debt, time debt, and the rest of it. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Creative isn't who you are. It's what you do. Along the way, creativity has gotten a mystical rap, as if it's some sort of gift. It's not. It's a choice. It's a skill. If you have a job where you get to decide what you do, you are a creative, a working creative, and you can get better at it. I'm thrilled to say that the Creatives Workshop is back, the most active of all the Akimbo workshops. It's about people who want to level up and make a difference with their creative work. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. In David Graeber's classic book, Debt, he talks about the origin of money, and he argues persuasively that money came after we invented debt, that money was an easy, reliable way to pay off debts. Now, capitalism is based on debt. And here's the simple math. If you can buy a machine that lets you be more productive, you will be able to gain market share and make a profit. That machine ends up being an asset of the company. That machine costs you money more than your competitors were willing to spend. To get that money, you went into debt. And you pay back that debt because over time, you make enough of a profit that the machine pays for itself. And so the very nature of capitalism has always been about building an asset, a property, maybe it's land, maybe it's a machine, that lets you have more leverage and thus make more money. But as we enter a post-industrial age, the question is, What are we going into debt for? And what kind of debt are we going into? So there's education debt in which many people at the tender age of 18, when they shouldn't be making a quarter million dollar decision, go a quarter million dollars into debt to buy an education that isn't actually as useful an asset as they hope. That's a crime and we should fix it. But there are other sorts of debt and that's what we're here to talk about today. The first one is this idea of technical debt. Programmers talk about it all the time, but I think we have to acknowledge that it's in many modern lives. In essence, technical debt is what happens as your code base increases. Because as you write more code, that code needs maintenance. Because for example, if your code is supporting a certain API and the API changes, you got to go change it. You got to go fix it. That as code gets more and more complicated, there isn't one human being who even understands all of it. And so now you need a team of people and that team of people needs coordination and on and on it goes. So you will notice, for example, that some kinds of software stop supporting old models of computers. And it's easy to think as a non-programmer, why would they do that? It used to work on my 1987 Mac SE. Why doesn't it work anymore? Well, the answer is technical debt. It's just not worth it for the company to maintain software 
because it's not simply between the software and the computer. There's lots of complicated things going on. And one other thing about technical debt. Technical debt isn't just the maintenance you need to do to keep your old systems running. It's the fact that you can't reach higher because your old systems won't support it. And so technical debt overlaps with project debt because once you've got a cohort of people, it's really hard to change the game because you don't want to leave them behind. And so when we take on projects, yes, they help us leverage what we want to do, but no, they don't always open the door for us to do the thing after that. We have to be aware that this debt not only is something that has to be repaid to keep it going, but it might keep us from doing the next thing, which means that smart leaders of technical teams that have software declare bankruptcy all the time. They say, we're not going to support this thing anymore. Sweep out the cruft and let's get rid of it. But there's also this idea of personal technical debt. Because in your life, you've got a rice cooker and a dishwasher and a car and a laptop and a phone and on and on. And all of them require you to be the head of maintenance for you to figure out what you're going to keep up with, which leads to what we really need to understand here as knowledge workers. And that is the idea of project debt. We need to talk for a second about Fred Brooks. In 1975, he published a book called The Mythical Man Month. Today probably should be called The Mythical Person Month, but the math is the same. At the dawn of big computing in the 1960s, at IBM, they did something that has probably happened in environments where you are in, maybe even by you, which is as a project, a lucrative project, a good project, starts falling behind, management says, hire more people. Let's throw people at this project and then we will get it done. Well, the argument of the Mythical Mad Month is quickly stated. Nine women working together in perfect coordination cannot figure out how to have a baby in just one month. It doesn't work that way. That what they figured out with the IBM 360 and the computers around that time were that as you added more programmers, you also added more management and more meetings and more communication and more bottlenecks. And in fact, when you added enough, the project came to a standstill. It doesn't actually go faster. It goes slower because project debt always arises. And part of the art of going forward in our project-based economy is figuring out smart ways to use the network to reduce the linear growth of project debt. Because if you're in Zoom all day long, nobody has time to get anything done. And one other thing about technical debt. Technical debt isn't just the maintenance you need to do to keep your old systems running. It's the fact that you can't reach higher because your old systems won't support it. And so technical debt overlaps with project debt because once you've got a cohort of people, it's really hard to change the game because you don't want to leave them behind. And so when we take on projects, yes, they help us leverage what we want to do, but no, they don't always open the door for us to do the thing after that. We have to be aware that this debt not only is something that has to be repaid to keep it going, but it might keep us from doing the next thing. Mm -hmm. 
Let's say you're a soloist. You're working on your own. The good news is 100% of the time you are in sync because there's only you. You don't need to write a memo. You don't need to have a meeting. There's only you. But if you can bring one person in, one freelancer, one partner, something amazing happens. Because now if you spend one hour a day coordinating with that person, they can spend seven hours of an eight-hour day adding value to what you've already got. You've dramatically multiplied your leverage. And then you think, okay, I'll add a second person. And now you're spending two hours a day in coordination, but in return, getting 10, 12, 14 hours of productivity a day. You can see where this is going. Because all mom and pop companies, all companies that grow from being just a couple of freelancers to more than that, go straight into the wall of project debt. Because once you've got five or six or seven people who are doing different jobs, your full-time job is now coordinating the work of everybody else. But you probably didn't realize this. So you're also trying to do your old full-time job of eight hours a day being you, getting new clients, making big decisions, inventing new things, being the freelancer you set out to be. And so your life gets really stressful. You try to hire your way out of it and it keeps getting harder because project debt rears its ugly head. But, and it's a huge but, there are exceptions to this. The first one is this. If you can figure out how to have people join the project who are doing exactly the same thing as the other people on the project, your technical debt doesn't go up in a linear fashion. That if those people don't have to talk to one another, if those people are replaceable cogs in your system, then you can add an enormous amount of leverage. Maybe this is running a babysitting service. The babysitters don't have to talk to each other. Adding another babysitter lets you get right back to getting new clients. Once you figure out an onboarding system, a quality control system, you can scale and scale and scale. This is one reason why temporary employment agencies can scale so quickly. When I was in college, my partner Steve Dennis and I ran a temporary employment agency. We had 400 employees, and we could have had more if we had had more business because it was basically a flat model. New customers, new employees, back and forth and back and forth. There didn't need to be a lot of middle management. But in the internet age, we're building things that are more complicated than that not quite so flat. So it's worth looking at Wikipedia. A tiny team of people, just a handful for years and years, were able to build the third biggest website in the world, a website that if they had chosen to monetize it, would have been worth billions of dollars. Most people don't know this, but Wikipedia is created in large part by 5,000 dedicated volunteers. The magic of dealing with project debt is that Jimmy Wales and his team figured out how to put in the time not to edit articles themselves. They didn't edit any articles themselves, but to create a structure so that as the project scaled, people who were really concerned and focused and eager could add an enormous amount of value without the central organization having to get much bigger. And so now, if you're a freelancer, if you're a bootstrapper, if you're a small business, I'm hoping 
that you will not look at taking on another project, another client, another opportunity in quite the same way. That when someone reaches out and says, why don't you add this link to your website? It'll be easy. It'll take you five minutes and these benefits will come from it. You can look at the project debt that that will bring. When someone says, oh, you should be on Clubhouse or you should be on Facebook or you should be on Twitter or you should be on LinkedIn, each one of them comes with project debt because you are signing on to take care of something for a long time. It's not about adopting a puppy. It's about owning a dog. And as we think about all the debts in our life, one of the things we need to do is figure out what to do with crushing financial debt. It's a real problem. But the other thing is to realize that everybody gets 168 hours a week. That's all you get. Burning the candle at both ends creates sleep debt, a debt that's almost impossible to discharge over time. No, the alternative is to realize we need to be much better at saying no, because saying yes means inviting debt. And that debt, that project debt, it needs to come with something that goes with it, a sort of productivity that leads to freedom and possibility so that we can invent the next thing, the reason we signed up in the first place. Be careful who you owe, because who you owe decides who you will become. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with three great questions from around the world. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. It's possible we have never had three questions on as wide a variety of topics as this week. Here we go. Hey, Seth. Brown Paper Dad here. Just listened to your episode on dogs and pet finder which you then expanded on to talk about markets, behavioral economics, and the human tendency to race to the bottom. Could you share something encouraging with those of us who struggle with dark thought patterns, with finding hope for our collective future? What keeps you going on your darker days, if you have any? Thanks for being you, Seth. Thanks for this. Thanks for giving me a chance to get us off on the right foot. Sometimes when I read my writing or hear my podcast, I worry that the things I'm highlighting are a little bit too pessimistic. Other times, I wonder if I'm being too optimistic. So hopefully there's a balance here. I think that being forewarned gives us the opportunity to see 
what's going on. And usually what we need to pay attention to are the pitfalls. But with that said, I think there are huge reasons to be optimistic. It is possible that we will get our act together and begin to reverse the carbon poisoning of our atmosphere. We certainly have the technology to do it. We already have it in place. It's possible that now that we are waking up, we can begin to start the overdue work on social justice and injustice. And it's possible that the networks that we are building can be put to good use to connect us, not to divide us. With all that said, it's worth noting several things. Even with the pandemic, the world is healthier than it has ever been. There are no really significant wars going on. I mean, if you're in one, it's significant to you. But compared to the state of the world in the 1600s or the 1900s, we are living in a relatively safe time, fingers crossed. And technology, technology has completely transformed the way we interact with each other. We are living longer, healthier lives. We have access to more tools and more connection than anyone would have dreamed of just 50 years ago. So I guess I'm optimistic about all of that, but aware that we're going to have to do it from the ground up, that each of us is going to have to figure out what it means to not waste this moment in time. Hello, Seth. This is Joram from, believe it or not, Lusaka, Zambia. I've been reading Carol Shapek's RUR and was amazed at how prescient his writing is, even though it was written in the 1920s. Most of the things he addressed, like the nature of AI and whether or not robots or machines should be treated the same way we treat human beings if they have a conscience, we still wrestle with them today. My question is, do you think machines or indeed robots can experience or have theory of mind the same way we do in that we're able to understand that other people have unique beliefs and desires that are different from our own, which subsequently enables us to engage in daily social interactions with them. Is theory of mind something that can be coded in principle into an AI or machine so that its social interactions with human beings or fellow robots is indistinguishable from that of an actual human being? Thank you for the good work you do. And I must confess, every time I listen to you, I go to bed less stupid. Thank you for this drum. And we could talk about this for a really long time. It's one of the things I majored in forever ago. And I learned a lot from Daniel Dennett. If you haven't read his books on consciousness, I recommend them. Basically, we've got two choices. Either we believe that humans and humans alone have this magical thing, this voice in our head, this little homunculus, a tiny person inside who has a little tiny person inside all the way up that has this magic power of consciousness. Or we believe that if an entity acts like it's conscious, then it is conscious. And we know that there are human beings who do not have a voice in their head. There are human beings who go through life acting like they are conscious the way I am and you are, but they are not familiar with that voice that you and I are familiar with. That's mind-blowing to me. So where I come out is that if a computer tricks us all into believing it is believing, then it is the most convenient thing in the world to say, yep, it is. 
because we're certainly not going to cut it open, just like we're not going to cut open that person down the street. We're not going to deprive this computer that is so capable of acting like a person from the privileges of acting like a person, just like we don't take those privileges away from that small percentage of people who don't have a voice in their head. So we can go down this rabbit hole for a really long time. But the purpose of giving somebody the benefit of the doubt when it comes to consciousness is to enable all of us to live a better life. And I don't see how to draw that line just because something is made out of silicon or something is a dolphin. The thing is, we are all entities and figuring out how to work with other entities for our mutual benefit feels like a no-brainer. I know there were too many puns in that. I didn't do them on purpose. Hi, Seth. Uh, Mike from Oxford here. Now I have a question for you that relates to audiences. Although it feels a little obtuse and even arrogant reading it back, uh, I do kind of wonder what your opinion is on it. So here goes. What do you suggest if you don't like the audience that you attract by doing the work or art that you love? Thanks very much. Thank you for this, Mike. So let's start with this. How long do you think it was before the Beatles got really tired of 14-year-old girls screaming at the top of their lungs? Now we'd like to carry on with the song, which is the title song from our new film. If you listen to the Grateful Dead talking from the stage during the 70s and the 80s, you can hear they got a little bit annoyed at some of the behavior that was going on in the crowd. I could go down the list for a really long time. It's pretty likely that if you are successful at bringing ideas to the world, if you are organizing true fans, if you are showing up with work that matters for people who care, over time, some of those people who care aren't necessarily going to be the people you would have chosen. I am super fortunate in that I really like the people who like my work, but I think I'm the exception. One of the costs of connecting a community is that you are now in that community, warts and all. And I think on balance, it's worth it. But I don't think that beating yourself up and acting like at all times, you must be appreciative of the way every single one of your customers behaves. I don't think that's going to help you do better work going forward. The work is the work, and people are going to do with it what they're going to do with it. They don't have to be your friend, but as soon as you sign up to have them be your customer, you are making a promise to them. And that promise has to be clear, and we have to do our best to keep it. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And 
It sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.